Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is a diversity-focused, early-stage venture capital fund based in New York. We're on a mission to invest in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. On this episode, we're going to focus on diverse venture capitalists on the rise. Listen in as Harlem Capital intern Brian Burton leads the conversation. Hey, everyone. This is Brian Burton, venture intern with Harlem Capital. Today, we're in conversation with Megan Maloney, a principal at General Catalyst in San Francisco, who is currently a first-year student at Harvard Business School. Hear more about Megan's path as she pivoted from the trading floor at Morgan Stanley in New York to shifting into early-stage investing on the West Coast. In this episode, Megan shares her unique perspectives on finding top founders, the potential for major disruption in legacy industries such as healthcare, and working on an IPO exit of a portfolio company. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Of course. And uh, to kick it off, I just wanted to open up to you and ask you a little bit more about your background, where you grew up, and how you kind of got started, where you went to school, things like that. Yeah, I was born and raised in Westchester County, New York. It's about an hour outside the city, a town called Armagh. I tried to leave New York, but inadvertently got accepted to Columbia. So that's where <laughs> I went to undergrad. <laughs> and I actually really enjoyed the school. I studied, I had a major in economics, concentration in music. I was really interested in the business side of music and thinking about how to help people who maybe don't focus on the business side, right? Creators are always doing their um, art and not necessarily thinking about how do I grow it, scale it, to use the tech word, and become a, a major artist. I did not like the industry itself, especially at the time. A lot of things were moving online, and I just viewed it as a little bit slower than I would have liked it to be. So I actually went and worked at Morgan Stanley. On the, on the flip side of the music thing, I was really interested in global economies. I'd studied abroad in China as well. So I worked in sales and trading for this guy named Mike Wilson, who was pretty incredible. He's, he's now the equity strategist at Morgan Stanley and really got into thinking about macro economies and how organizations like the Fed impact interest rates and their, thereby impact so many other things in the economy. As I was sitting on the desk though, I was also reading a lot of research and tech was penetrating every single industry. So I was like, I want to be where all of these companies are growing and just innovating very quickly. About two years into the job, I switched over to tech banking, which was actually a very rare move at the time to switch from sales and trading to tech banking. I moved out to, to San Francisco. I still had Morgan Stanley, but covering companies who were pre-IPO, maybe doing acquisitions, and from there, I moved even earlier after about another two years and wound up in venture capital general catalyst. So I was at GC for about three years, focusing on early stage companies, generally speaking, but had a couple of different focus areas, which we can talk about a little bit later. But the whole moral of it was I basically wanted to figure out when and where decisions were being made. I really wanted to help people, especially entrepreneurs and creators who were 
thinking about the world differently. And I viewed capital as a way to help them scale and grow their businesses or companies. Yeah, for sure. That definitely makes a lot of sense. But what attracted you specifically to venture capital, maybe rather than going the, the private equity route and that kind of more traditional exit from banking? Yeah, that's a good question. I did not know about venture capital growing up, so I can't say that I was a kid in a garage or something like that and, and, and thought about yeah. venture capital. It actually started off with a thesis around micro-investing. If you remember a few years ago, there was a lot of development, developmental work being done globally around micro-investing. And for example, women in sub-Saharan Africa, could you actually invest in them and give them mosquito nets? Would that have an impact on their local economies and even the health of their economies? And the research was very finicky around it. So basically what happened was I was reading blogs. I was reading Fred Wilson. I picked up The Lean Startup by Eric Ries and all of the kind of classic um, VC books. I liked how venture was a long-term game as opposed to the stock market, which was much more of a short-term quarterly swing game. Venture in particular, you're wrong most of the time, right? The law, a law of small numbers really in the sense that you only get a couple of at that. But if you're right, the, the impact is so transformative. And I, so basically I was reading a lot of these types of blogs, thinking about, okay, what's the next trend that's going to happen? And how do I make sure that I'm in the room when those decisions are being made about who and what to invest in? So I, I honestly just wanted to know how venture worked and that's how I originally got into it. So definitely a way of making an impact that's different from just trying to make a peer financial return. And obviously that's very important for your LP and for the health of the fund in general, but it's really a great way to launch new companies and, and meet awesome people along the way. And as you're making that transition, what attracted you to general catalyst? How did you land at that specific fund? So when I was in tech banking, what most people were doing was going to private equity, like you mentioned while I know how to do models and can be technical, that is not how I actually like spending my time. I'm someone yeah. who likes being on the ground, meeting with entrepreneurs, talking to them and even becoming friends in a lot of cases. So I knew that I didn't want to necessarily just be in models and doing financial engineering. And the logical next step would have been to be in a growth equity role. And growth, you're a little bit earlier than private equity. It's still pretty high growth um, tech companies. But what I realized was through interviewing, so basically recruiters will come and recruit at different banks. So think about like your top tier bulge bracket banks, they'll come through and ask if you want to work in, at any of these firms. What I realized was I just think a little bit differently than your growth investor. Your growth type of investor is looking at a market and picking out of three, five, however many companies, which one of those is going to be a winner, right? If you look at the grocery market today, the grocery delivery market today, you can probably see which companies are emerging as the winners and put money behind those. I'm much more um, someone who likes to think about new types of industries um, and companies, as well as how can we actually transform the way things are done today? How can we rethink that? 
it's a little bit of a pie in the sky type of mindset, <laughs> but it starts with a single person or a group of entrepreneurs who are going about doing that. That was a long-winded way of saying I basically was interviewing at some growth firms and actually found myself relating more to the early stage partners at different VCs. And I, I had that aha moment that, okay, this is probably what I should be spending my time on. So I got lucky in that one of the managing directors I worked with at Morgan Stanley put me in touch with someone, one of the partners at General Catalyst. And I had an awesome conversation with him. And just as I met all the other partners at the firm, I loved it and decided to join. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's funny how much you interview and how much interviewing can be a mutually selective process and you'll figure out along the way about what you don't like, what you do, and and the people you ultimately connect with. And so you spent some time at at GC before you headed off to school. What was a, a typical start to your week? I know nothing's typical. You're meeting with different people. Things speed up, things slow down, but how would you start off your week and and begin to think about the things you wanted to jump into? Like you said, nothing was typical. (laughs) The fun part of the job, I think I would have gotten bored very easily if I was doing the same thing every day. The typical start, I'm someone who likes to work out in the morning, so I would try to work out before I even get to the office. Back in the day when we had to go to the office, now everything's virtual. (laughs) Let's pretend that this is a non-virtual world for a second. Typical start was wake up, work out, start checking emails almost immediately. And probably from that 7.30 to 8 a.m. window, you're checking emails. Then on my commute, I actually like to listen to a couple of podcasts just to catch up on on what's happening. Uh, Most of them are tech-focused, so... that is my bias. I think some people like to not think about the work that they're doing, but I actually really love listening to tech podcasts. After that, meetings usually started around 8, 8.30, and you might be meeting with a number of entrepreneurs during the day, probably three to four during the busy time, or two to three. The meetings, I like to do walks a lot of times. So when I was in the Bay, you're just very lucky to have beautiful weather. So I would actually just walk with entrepreneurs and, and hear the pitches. The other part of the job is actually doing a lot of coffee chats. You drink so much coffee in venture. <laughs> you, you allow yourself to. And, and those types of meetings are meetings with other angel investors. It might be someone who's also at a company right now and thinking about starting something. So we'll do a whiteboarding session to still lay out an idea and say, hey, a lot of times they're asking me, hey, have you seen anything in this space? What do you think about this idea in general? Other days of the week, you're actually going to events and even sometimes startup pitch days. So there might be an accelerator putting together a series of pitches. and You'll hear those all day. And then once a week, every firm usually has a set of partner meetings. So during these partner meetings, that's usually taking up the bulk of your time and you're basically running through the portfolio at large. GC actually separated out the different partner meetings now, so you have the early stage team and the growth stage team. Some firms will actually just loop them all together, so you'll be in that meeting usually your entire Monday talking about companies you're going to invest in and then also the portfolio companies themselves. Yeah, and so you're meeting a lot of people and different founders, entrepreneurs. As you were thinking over the course of your your career in venture so far, what was your process for sourcing and diligencing companies? What made them attractive to you and what were some of the criteria you had for investment? 
my first one was sourcing. A, you have monthly or even bi-weekly meetings with other VCs and angels. The landscape is big in terms of dollars, but I will say it's actually small in terms of network. There are folks who are just very ingrained in the tech community. And so you wind up seeing very similar companies or focusing on similar industries. So you can share deal flow from that perspective, especially if you're at the next stage. So if I'm investing in seed in series A, there might be a pre-seed investor or a seed investor who's um, looking to help their, their portfolio companies raise. The second thing is you're actually spending a lot of time with your existing portfolio companies. So through things like board meetings or even just catch-ups with your entrepreneurs, they wind up having colleagues and peers who are starting companies as well. So a lot of my deal sourcing will actually come from the entrepreneurs themselves who maybe have, have people they know starting companies. And then the third thing is, if you're digging into a new area, for example, let's say I wanted to focus on insure tech and making this up. I might just start attending a lot of different meetups and events because it's also possible that people who are starting companies are at those events as well. And so you're just trying to learn as much as possible what's going on, what are the new trends, be where all of the people are meeting. And every once in a while, you'll get deal flow through that as well. The second part of your question, (laughs) which is some of the criteria for investing, right? This is going to be a very hand-wavy answer, but it's very true. So I want to make sure that people know that this is very true, which is A, it is really about the founder, especially at early stage, because you don't have much to go on. So the founder needs to be someone who lives, breathes, sleeps about this idea, thinking about this idea especially when you think about from an investing perspective, a lot of times the idea actually changes. So you're really investing in the person and and your belief that they will be able to figure out what the right answer is or the right product is along the way. The second is domain expertise. Founders who have domain expertise are just fundamentally at at an advantage, right? Now, that's with the caveat of Also, naivete and and curiosity are natural factors. So if you have someone who spent 20 years in the fintech industry, they might actually miss something that is emerging, a new trend that's emerging. So someone who really understands it, but also can move and change with emerging trends. And then the last thing is the ability to attract talent. So a lot of ways that investors will try to scope this out in a meeting is they'll just ask who have you hired or if we were to invest today who would be your first few hires and that answer will inform who they surround themselves with both from a higher perspective and even from an advising perspective so an entrepreneur might say I have this person advising me who's well respected well reputed and is, is backing me along the way so those three things along with a bunch of other things um, going, come into play when, when I'm looking at, at company. Yeah, and I wanted to focus a little bit on your mission of, of founders in general and how important they are, especially at the earlier stage. 
with the onset of the pandemic, that's certainly changed the way we're interacting or the way you're attending school right now. How do you see that shaping out in terms of your ability to get that conviction around the founder and, and feel comfortable investing in them now that we're in a more remote and virtual world? So one of the interesting parts about the pandemic is I found that my network has narrowed in scope and also my focus has narrowed as well. When before the pandemic, you are basically able to meet at any time in some ways, right? The calendar is very flexible. You might see someone in these um, in an almost informal manner. And now what you're doing is you're actually having Zoom calls that are set and focused and usually end on time, start on time. VCs are notorious for being late or not showing up on time. And so the challenge with it becomes how do you get to know someone in an informal way before you essentially commit to a marriage, which is giving them a term sheet. That piece of it, I think we're all still figuring it out. Deals are getting done, but I would say a lot more of the dollars are going into late stage companies right now because those are the ones that are proven out. It was already a trend happening right before this, but now a lot of these companies have seen their numbers accelerate as a result of just shifting consumer behavior as well as enterprise behavior. On the early side, the way that I've started to get comfort with founders are honestly the ones that are just very persistent in their ideas. So they're figuring out ways to sign up customers. They're figuring out ways to hire in a virtual setting. And they're also figuring out ways to get investors interested in the idea because they've got a unique insight. So that's one of the things I feel like it's actually an interesting time to start a company because there's almost less downside risk in that lots of people don't have jobs right now. Consumer behavior is shifting. Also enterprise behavior is shifting. There's a really big opportunity from that perspective and, and dollars are still flowing in VC. It's just harder to get to know the person and that just takes reps. We just have to meet as much as possible. Yeah, and I think that allocation of, of dollars as you were mentioning is maybe focused on a little bit later stage. And I wanted to get your opinion on how you think about the capital and the asset class in general. There seems to be a lot of it. Interest rates are super low. There's lots of cash. Maybe it's being more concentrated. How do you think about the access to capital that, that founders have, um, especially more diverse founders, women, people of color? How do you see that shaping out as venture continues to evolve? Yeah. Venture as an asset class is growing, right? There are more and more dollars flowing into venture. We're not at 99, 2000 levels, but I think that I would argue that's a good thing. It's, there's also different types of VCs that are emerging. So you've got your more multi-stage venture capital funds, meaning that they'll invest later and later with you as you grow. They might start up at seed and grow along the way. But then you've got funds that emerged that were just focused on seed capital. I would say that was almost over the past 10, 15 years. I think the really interesting trend right now is this emergence of the solo capitalist, meaning these are VCs who are just investing as solo venture capitalists. And, and I think what entrepreneurs 
love about this is that they don't have to jump through hoops to get an answer because you're basically dealing with one person. What I'm excited about in the venture world is that there are, there's no one size fits all anymore. It's not like you only have to go to one fund or a few funds. And if they say no, that's it. Especially if you're thinking about entrepreneurs of color, you have options because the capital is available. The question is, how do you just get the intros, the, the shaky or the perhaps questionable part about the venture industry is that cold intros are a lot harder than warm intros. And if you don't have that warm intro, meaning people in the industry that can get you in the door, it becomes harder to raise capital at the end of the day. Um, and that's something that I think probably needs to change over the next couple of years. But I am excited about that point I just made where there are a lot of different types of funds, as well as different types of angel investors, et cetera, that you can tap into to start your business and, and make sure you get that initial round done. For sure. And during your time at GC and Adventure, which you've begun to focus in your areas or, or industries that you like, what's it been like? It seems like you've had some time in healthcare. Was that your initial attraction or did you develop that as you started down your path? Yeah, so I had a little bit of a bias towards healthcare in that my mother was a physician. And what I learned growing up is that physicians actually didn't study the business side of things. It's very similar to the musician thesis I had mentioned at the beginning of this. Doctors also really focused on what they should be focusing on, which is saving lives and, and helping people live better and healthier lives. So healthcare was actually one of the uh, last industries that tech has focused on. I think healthcare and a couple of other industries, like you're seeing it in insurance, you're seeing it a little bit in, on the industrial side and manufacturing. These big, heavy industries, highly regulated. If you go into them, you need to make sure that, for example, in healthcare, it's HIPAA compliance, a lot of, a lot of factors that just become hard for an entrepreneur, a lot of barriers to entry. So for healthcare in particular, I have been really excited and interested in the demographic shifts that are going on. You, of course, have the heavy technical sort of biotech. We're seeing a lot of things in genetics, et cetera. But you're also seeing shifts in terms of how people are being served. So think about communities of color. Think about women and their needs. Women were a lot more quiet about their health needs. I think what Serena Williams is, has been doing right now in talking about postpartum depression, that was a very quiet topic, right? So women are much more vocal about it. So the companies that I, I have the privilege of and have had the privilege of working with, they're actually impacting these communities in very major ways and are conscious about the communities that they're impacting. I'm thinking of Erica Cohen, for example, from uh, Loom, where she's talking a lot about women and body positivity and being healthy as women, talking about all of the things that they have to, to deal with from a pregnancy perspective. Healthcare is definitely one of those things. I actually think some of the emergence of different types of industries are also happening in healthcare. For example, thinking about how do you do payments and make sure that insurance bills are not opaque 
every time you get it. I don't know about you, but when I get my insurance bill, I'm like, this would be like a restaurant sending me the bill. with No itemizing at all. Yeah, no itemizing. They don't even tell you what you got. So you can't actually dispute it, anything like that. I'm also thinking about the mental health phase, right? So we were involved in a company called MindStrong, which has been doing pretty incredible work. And just thinking about there are, there's definitely mental health going on with people in general, especially during this time, but you've also got people with um, very serious illnesses, so you call it serious mental illness, schizophrenics, et cetera, who have not been um, traditionally served in a, in a major way. So companies like that are just rethinking the demographics and how do you target them in a very verticalized, focused way and have been, have been really exciting. I think there's so much to do in the healthcare space of, as you're mentioning, not only serving underserved communities, be that minorities, women, et cetera, but just certain illnesses that are hard to manage or just don't have that much access to or aren't covered by insurance traditionally. So as you see yourself continuing down venture path and continue to grow as an investor, is there a place you think you'll continue to focus on or are there areas that outside of that you're interested in as well? Yeah, it's definitely something that I want to continue to focus on. I think healthcare is probably going to see one of the most transformative shifts in the next 20 years. I, I think it's just the beginning. So I, in, and I actually think the barriers that I mentioned in the beginning are actually dissipating a lot in that as an entrepreneur, you can actually go after companies themselves. So there are a lot of tech companies, for example, who are more willing to be self-insured employers meaning they'll actually pay you in almost in a SaaS-like way on a monthly basis um, for your service and bundle it into a series of offerings that they offer their employees. So you don't have to go through the insurance companies, which was a big barrier to entry before. I'm actually still really excited about crypto. I know this is like a, <laughs> it's a touchy subject for, for folks, especially given all the ups and downs of it. But seeing just the, the resilience in entrepreneurs from that perspective, a lot of the infrastructure is still being built, but I think you're going to start to see more and more application use cases on top of it. And I would think about crypto in the same way that we thought about AI, where it's just a means. It's not your actual business model. It's a way to actually distribute and rethink the way that we do financial transactions, the way that we do sharing, if you think about income sharing agreements, crypto actually has a lot of interesting use cases around that. And then the other piece I'm still really passionate about is this sort of community-based companies that are forming. And I know you guys at, at Harlem Capital have been involved with Flavity and so many other companies that are thinking about how do we serve people in a very focused way? This is especially important during COVID because creators are losing jobs, right? At just unprecedented rates. And it's going to be very hard to be hired once we recover. So how do you think about like the backend systems that can help them reach their users in a more efficient way? What are the Patreon 2.0s that are going to start to come about? How do we think about companies like Substack that have been emerging and like Substack that have been emerging and really transforming the way that you as a freelancer, you as a person can build your brand on a platform. 
So those are probably some of the bigger trends that I'm seeing right now. But honestly, I love anything that anyone who's tackling a messy industry, I, I get very excited about and <laughs> always want to talk to those types of entrepreneurs as well. That's awesome. You're always up for the challenge and looking to grow more and learn. So that's always a great thing to have in an investor. Thinking back about it, as you've continued to grow in your career, you're at a, you know, a top fund, you were able to make it up to principal, uh, a role that's typical of someone that's post-MBA. What was one of your decisions to go to school and, and attend Harvard? Obviously, it's a fantastic institution, but you didn't necessarily need to go back to school to continue on. What was your thought around going back to school at this point in your career? Yeah, I've actually played around with the idea of coming to business school. And I delayed it for a number of years because I felt like there was still so much to learn. I really wanted to understand, for example, in boardrooms, how much influence do investors have on the decisions that companies make? How did that company decide to pivot or decide to shut down? Why did they do that? And for me, it was so much more important to be in the room where it happens, as Hamilton would say, opposed to it in a classroom setting. Now, that being said, what I reached in my career was this moment where I do now understand how those decisions are being made. And I wanted to fill out the side of just having a broad perspective on the world and meeting people who think differently than me. I say that in that the Valley can be very insulating. It's an amazing place to be, but you almost live in a bubble of sorts, right? Where, for example, if there's any new innovation, San Francisco's gonna have it. You're gonna have an autonomous car driving by and someone on a scooter (laughs) (laughs) running into you at any given moment. Someone's really excited about that space idea that you have as well. And that's honestly, amazing, but it's not really how the country and the world uh, is thinking. So for me, it's really important to also have this international perspective, be able to have a couple of frameworks for the things that I've seen. There's actually been a lot of studies done about it. And I'm, Brian, when I tell you this, I love learning. So at any given time, I want to be learning. If I'm not learning, I am if I'm comfortable, it's just, it's not good for me. It's not good for my health. I have to always be uh, learning and observing. So this was taking a step back and coming to business school was my way of saying, all right, how do I take all the things I've learned, codify it a little bit more, and then get a little bit more of a broad perspective on the world and, and what's out there. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's always good to get a good perspective on why you want to make any move that you make, especially one as time consuming and people always talk about the financial expense of going to school, but it's also a time commitment as well. You have to think about the opportunity cost of what you can be doing outside. And I think having moved out to the Bay from New York as well, about three years ago and being here, you definitely get into your own world here. And it's not truly how the rest of the country is or, or the world more broadly. So I think that's great. And I wanted to focus on one last question and relate it back to our mission here at Holland Capital about investing in diverse founders. You spoke at Afrotech, and I wanted to get your perspective on how you see that community developing. What do you see your role in it and what do you see the role of investors and venture capital 
in bringing access to more diverse founders, particularly those of color? Yeah, it's such an important question. It's something that I have been thinking about since I thought about going into investing and everything that I've done, to be honest. I talked a lot about why I'm interested in venture and tech before, especially from that more high level perspective. But fundamentally, I think it's really important that we have people like us who are represented in an industry like this that is growing very quickly and is impacting a lot of lives, right? The products that come out of tech and the ultimate end products really do touch the everyday person and the everyday employee, the everyday worker. So if there aren't voices in the room, we've seen this in the media side of things too, it can actually be very dangerous because you just miss important things. So I'm really hopeful, especially coming out of um, this year, which feels like a very dark storm that we've, <laughs> we've endured. But I think the Black Lives Matter movement is putting pressure on every industry, and I hope it, it puts even more pressure on the tech community to consider, especially at the earliest stages, how we are hiring and how we are making sure that we are hiring from the very beginning diverse people. And I've, I've talked to a lot of the companies I've been involved with. It becomes harder and harder to bring in diverse talent because you will basically make them the token one. If you think about right. having a hundred people in the room, now you want to bring in your first African-American or your first Latino. Like they don't want to be there alone in a room full of people who don't look like them and they, they basically have to represent their entire community in every single meeting. That is a lot of pressure and it's undue pressure. So I never at this point buy the pipeline argument. I do buy the effort argument and that you didn't put effort into it and that's why we're in this position. I'm excited about it in terms of the work you guys are doing at Harlem Capital and making sure that this message is amplified, putting folks on a platform so that their voices can be heard excited with the work that Black VC is doing, just in making sure that more and more talent is going into venture. I've actually been involved um, in mentoring quite a few people, um, both within the Black VC ecosystem and outside of it, and just making sure that more and more of this talent is coming through. And I, I'm always open to having conversations with folks who are interested. And then the other piece I'm excited about is there is a lot of talent at tech companies, right? Like if you think about Facebook, Google, et cetera, and what I'm hoping is that with the abundance of, of capital that we just talked about and the fact that VCs are very focused on this, I'm hoping that people will actually um, leave <laughs> their companies at some point and start uh, companies as well. Because that domain expertise that I mentioned before, they really do have it. They've been in tech. They know how this, the, this world works. And I would love to see so much more of that type of talent coming in and building out the next generation of companies. Yeah, I think that's super important, especially the the part you're mentioning on on mentorship and, and what you've been able to do through Black VC or maybe less formally through other channels. And as I'm getting to, you know, my closing questions here, I wanted to ask you on the flip side, who's someone out there that you've admired or an investor out there that has had a great impact on you and what was that impact? 
Yeah, I probably have two in there. Can I answer it? Yeah, sure, go ahead. So the first is Melody Hobson. And I've never met her, but for folks who don't know, she's head of aerial investments. And I had learned about her years and years ago. Someone had mentioned her because I had said I wanted pursue investing and they said oh have you heard of Melody Hobson I said no looked her up and I think I've, I've just admired her from afar because there are so few black women unfortunately in the investing world and there's so few who have actually got into her position where you're leading a very large organization with a lot of capital to deploy and you're you're crushing it so Melody Hobson for sure is one of those people who one day I hope to be able to meet and chat with about her journey. And then the second one is Mark Andreessen, who is just a very smart mind and I think very cerebral in how he thinks about investing. I've really admired how they've built out Andreessen Horowitz. Of course, I'm a GC loyalist, so of course I <laughs> admire all of the GC partners first, yeah. but I'm thinking, I thought that would be too much of an, an obvious answer. I, as a kid, used to love reading, and if you follow Mark Andreessen, his book collection is massive and insane, and he's always learning. He's a uh, student of history, so when that comes up in board conversations, for example, a founder might be like, hey, have you seen something like this before? I just, I, I admire the way that he's able to go back in time and talk about things like the advent of the telephone and how that analog world then translated into this digital world. So making those connecting points to me is pretty incredible. Those two would probably be at the top of my list in terms of people I admire. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, Melody Hobson is killing it. She's got her own college at Princeton now. She's doing great. So she's Shout out to Melody Hobson, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to her. And I'll ask you this, this one last question. As you've you know, had the time to reflect in your career and your life so far, what would you tell your younger self if you could speak to her today? I would say read more and don't let your math teachers put you down. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny, but I really do think as a kid, especially you were always looking at what other people are doing and measuring yourself up against those things. And honestly, not a lot of uh, kids like to read, especially the popular ones. So I think I wound up reading a lot, but I almost wish I had read more. And I was actually very quantitatively gifted as a kid. And you run into teachers, especially just being a woman of color who uh, might discourage you from that. So those two things I would tell a younger self not listen to all the haters, no. <laughs> Block out the haters. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and to share your story and your career thus far with this community. So I definitely appreciate it. And best of luck in continuing your first semester, first year at Harvard. So good luck with everything. Thanks so much for having me. And a shout out to you all at Harlem Capital and especially Audrey, Jared, and Brandon. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. And that's a wrap. 
To stay connected with all things Harlem Capital, you can find us on Twitter at Harlem Capital. Until next time, keep building.